Stephen Drew from the Architecture Social, and I am here with a guest, a dear old friend and colleague, Alicia Yao, who is currently at the Brunswick Group. Alicia, how are you today? Are you okay? I'm good, thank you, Stephen. Thanks for having me on your podcast. No worries. This is so formal, isn't it? When when you, when you think about it, um, we've actually worked for many, many years in the office together. You know exactly what I'm like. <laughs> I do. So, yeah, hopefully not terrible, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, it was really fun working with you, and I and I love your dog. The dog was, you know, employee. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, Dexter. Uh, Dexter's still doing well. He's in Wales yeah. right now, but he, he's actually in the Welsh lockdown, Alicia, technically, so I can't <laughs> see him for two weeks. Crazy, huh? <laughs> Crazy world we're living in right now. With the lockdowns, everything. Fine in Hong Kong, but I don't know about the UK. But things are less crazy over here in Asia. I got to say, right? Yeah, that's true. So for anyone listening, this is the first time that they've they've been introduced to you. So Alicia, maybe you can run through because actually you're currently in Hong Kong now. But for us to work together, you were in London. So in terms of what you do currently, you're involved in marketing and communications and that in that in that in the field of architecture, that's your specialty. But perhaps we can we can rewind. So I'm gonna get my little see that? That's like the bells of history past. We're gonna go all the way back. Do you wanna to tell me when you were studying architecture? Maybe that's a good point to start from. Yeah, sure. So I studied architecture at part one level um, and I graduated from Westminster in 2014. Um, I think I knew back then when I was in probably second year that I don't want to become an architect. Um, And there were multiple reasons that led me to this decision, um, mainly being that the degree is so bloody long. But I also there were financial constraints. um, And also I sort of looked a little bit beyond the career of being an architect and I realized there was a whole sort of other world out there that I was quite interested in doing, which is actually the business of architecture. Great. Wow. That sounds so full. It's true. The business of architecture. There are so many facets to architecture and, and I actually have one or two guests on. And I think the important thing is, yes, I love architecture. You love architecture as well. You don't necessarily have to be in life when you're studying. You don't have to be an architect. If you want to, fantastic. Great. We support that. There's so many really good architects. But the point is you can work indirectly in architecture. You can still contribute to architecture and do something different. So you felt that way. Now, you did work in industry, didn't you, as a a part one? And I've heard all the stories about your structural models and so forth. Maybe for the gang and and the crowd, you can expand upon where you worked Yeah, sure. So I went and did several internships um, during my degree. And um, when I did my year out, um, I interned at a structural engineering practice um, in London uh, to get some sort of real life experience and um, and also uh, across sort of a couple of different firms in London that had really big projects, sort of commercial, residential uh, projects going on. Um, And I 
uh, I think that's when I really sparked my interest in the business of architecture because there was actually many teams of people coming together. There were like the structure engineers, there were the architect, there was the uh, people on site, the construction guys and the MEP guys. And then when they all sat down together in a meeting, something for me just clicked right there. And I thought that was really interesting. And I think that was the most interesting part of the degree that I had to do. Um, it wasn't mm. actually designing the buildings itself, but actually rather working and, and managing the relationship between the different teams and different voices in a project. Makes sense. So so you were you were at the structures. So there was one or two links before we met as well. So I seem to remember my fuzzy memory because I'm I'm it's been a few years now. I'm not quite nineteen anymore. What am I now? Twenty four, twenty five, Alicia? I'm still quite young, right? <laughs> exactly. No. <laughs> no, I'm thirty three. I am way, way past twenty three. But I seem to remember because we when we met, so it's important for context is that I was running at the time. I was uh, one of the directors of a new architectural recruitment company uh, called Shape Careers. So I just left Bespoke. We were we were doing well, but we, it was very, and you remember more than anything, we were in a shared office. It was kind of the fun and energy of a startup and the maybe the highs and lows of a startup, as in it was fun, it was cool. But for context, we were working. Do you remember there was um, a tailor in the corner? We had marketing people. Do you remember? What was that place called in Clarkenwell we were at? Well, oh, it was um, Chantry Lane Station, Hatton Gardens. It was yeah, right Hatton in the middle of Hatton Gardens. It was in a sort of, you know, within a courtyard of a courtyard uh, sort it of was a yeah, and it was a show. We yeah, it was kind of very raw, sort of studio type, <laughs> very startup y because you know shared office was still such a new concept back then. But obviously, where you know we work has gone down, you know, in flames, and we're all, you know um, in different yeah. worlds. But it was really fun, yeah. It was fun. I mean, I beg to, I worry how much computer plugs we had on the few sockets there. I always had, like, sometimes I would nearly wake up in sweats and just think, are we all going to burn? Um, <laughs> but you had some amazing, do you remember we had the L, the, the quite senior, um, uh, what do you call it? The, the ex jeweler, the guy, um, who was in the corner. And his wife wanted him to have a hobby, so he had his own business. So he'd come into the office, potter around for half an hour and fall asleep. Do you remember yeah. that guy? Yeah, he was just sort of always doing his own thing. I actually, <laughs> we were there for quite a long time, and I just couldn't quite figure out what he was actually doing most of the time until you actually told me that he runs a jewellery business. <laughs> that's right. So yeah. the point is, so we, we were, to put it in context, and that's the, the crazy thing. So you went from, you know, professional offices, and then you, you joined us at um, Shape Careers. And so uh, it's probably important to mention, so that was a quite a bold step as well, actually, at the time wasn't it because you were moving away from your internship and and at shape careers the role was as an architectural recruitment consultant i mean at first what kind of appealed to you about working in recruitment um i think the appeal uh was that you were able to speak to people of really diverse backgrounds because um in a recruitment role, we recruited for basically every role that was involved in an architecture practice. So also the business support side, um, not mm. just architects. Um, and you actually get to understand what everyone was really doing, which is not something that they actually taught you at architecture school, like how the whole business come together. Um, yeah. 
And, you know, during during my time there, when I was recruiting for a lot of the business support roles, was actually speaking to a lot of the marketing managers. Um, oh, yeah, that's very that, true. That sort of planted the seed for me. And I was just I was looking at the CV and I thought, wow, what they're doing is actually you know enormously interesting. Um, and you, you sort of make sense of how an architecture practice is formulated, is structured, how yeah. why you don't just you know, if you just if I just carried on you know, did my part three and just became an architect, that would be all that I knew in the world. So I think mm-hmm. recruitment kind of offered me like a different insight into the industry that I hadn't even thought about before. It was when I, when I had, when I was working in recruitment, I, 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 I sort of had an inkling. It wasn't quite what I want to do in the end, but then it sort of opened up this array of opportunity for me that I'm really thankful for, you know, yeah. back then, I think if I hadn't had done this, I wouldn't be doing and working at you know a, you know an amazing you know PR firm right now, um, and for the past five years. Yeah, that's really interesting to talk about, and we'll go into that a little bit because, as you know as well, what's quite interesting about recruitment is that nine times out of ten, the process behind the scenes is incredibly stressful, and it's not for everyone else. And you've literally sometimes you've got to bang the gong. It really isn't a job for everyone, and uh, you are actually. Um, I would argue that you were probably our best recruitment consultant, but doesn't necessarily mean in life that you have to do it forever. And um, we've got a few good stories about that as well. But it is a, a definitely a stressful job. What I do think um, where it where it can work out for people is, I think you have to be a little bit outgoing, and you have to you have to completely you have to be someone that can keep on going, keep on going because. Uh, it can be a tough job. But let's talk about that briefly. I agree that actually what is interesting about the um, about recruitment is that, yeah, you do see behind the scenes, don't you? And it is quite interesting to speak to directors on a strategic level and kind of advise them on uh, possibility of who can join the company, who would be a good, valuable resource. So definitely a lot of skills there. So at one point in time, you, you then handed me your notice, didn't you? Unbelievable. Get out of the office. Get out. And I'm no, actually, there was no shouting. There's no nothing. I completely understood. <laughs> but yeah, you were like, right, it's not for me. And so at the time, you did have a marketing opportunity. Is that right? Yeah. So uh, you mean the role I was recruiting for or the people that I met? So I mean, that. so at the time, you found another job and you said, Shape Careers and Stephen Drew, say lovey. I am oh, moving yeah. on to marketing. So, yeah, so I sort of threw my CV out there. I was just the blind. Yeah, because so you were, you, were... Again, you know, I had to start again. I had to start from ground yeah. zero. I was just, I have no experience in the field. Um, but then I realized that, you know, to really cut it, you know, you know, really cut it in the profession, you have to work in a professional services communications yeah. PR firm. You know, you have to actually learn your trade. Um, and then I sort of threw my CV out there and sort of no response month one <laughs> month two and then it was sort of like going like oh no this is this is the end for me i should just go back and just do my part two you know i was almost on gonna give up um and then i landed a job with carol communications um they're mm. based in london um and they actually were a pr firm that specialized in architecture and design so then mm, it, it, we found yeah we found like a you know like a resonance with each other and and it sort of just started there. They sort of just gave me a chance and then said, you know, 
okay, you know, let's see what you can do. You know, you know a lot about architecture. You studied it. You spent, you had the humility to spend three years doing it at part one. So let's transform that into something that it's workable, you know, for what we do as communications and PR consultants. Mm. Yeah. It was very, a big struggle very, to start, though. Yeah. Yeah, let's go into that then, because obviously when you kind of move away, and this is the same a little bit like recruitment. I remember when I was a part one and then a part two at EPR, I left after two years at EPR to go into recruitment. And it was there was that moment I remember when I was going into the, the job and I was psyched up to do it. And it was literally a case of, OK, great. Here's the phone. Here's the desk. Go, go on. And you're like, uh, um, uh, okay. I'll just load up Outlook and breathe. And it's that, I remember there's that daunting thing. And uh, you were, because I think where you were good as well is that in your previous one or two of your roles, you were involved a bit of networking and, and that kind of aspect. So you were good at that. But, you know, recruitment can be scary for other people. But in terms of marketing, let's talk about that. So you literally got there on day one of marketing and you're like, right, I'm going to market architecture. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so what do you, what, any tips for anyone out there? How do you ease into it? Or how did you get your head around the adjustments? And what did you um, do first, maybe? Um, I think it's actually to find uh, what you before you sort of go like, oh, I'm going to jump into PR. I think you got to think think about what the role actually requires. And luckily for me, I really enjoy creative writing. That was my strong okay. I love writing, and I was just like, right, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and make a job out of this. Um, and then yeah. I realized that actually the the PR and communication sector need people who write, you know, who who are very strong writers and people who are not afraid to just stand up and give a presentation, you know, people who are very outgoing. Um, and I think you've got to get very uncomfortable before you start to get uncomfortable. And um, although it was quite difficult, you know, to get hired at the start, you know, I think you've got to, you know, if you find that thing that you really like, which is creative writing for me, and I really stuck with it, and I just wrote a load of stuff, attached my samples with it and be like, you know, I can, I can do this, you know? Um, and I think it's important for you to sort of understand the dynamics of the relationship in the industry, you know, understand who, if, especially if you work in a PR firm that advises um, architecture and design professionals, I think you need mm. to sort of get behind their mindset and understand what they are worried about. They're worried about getting projects. They're worried about their reputation. They're worried about their clients who are most of the time developers. Um, then you start to think about, you know, the whole relationship with the game and start building up your own network. Um, yeah. I think a big part of it is actually start building up the network with not just your direct clients, your architects, but also um, your network with the developers, their clients, which also naturally became, we, well, when I was working in communications in London, quite a lot of my clients, even now, quite a lot of them are actually developers, like, you know, in the, in the architecture trade, you would say the mm. client side. So I would say 60, 40 right now, are, my, my network is in property development rather than in architecture but it's always interesting yeah you need to keep up with it you need to keep up with what your clients are worried about and be extremely extremely knowledgeable about what they know so even Mm. if you moved a bit away from industry always always keep up with your knowledge with it so that you don't end up just being in this sort of pr marketing communications world 
and you just forgot all about architecture because when you mm. work um, in an office, uh, like, you know, in a communications firm, you're working with people who are not from sector at all. You might work in a really large, well, where I'm working, I was a very huge, you know, PR agency. It's a very international communications firm. You've got people that work in different sectors like oil and gas. They work for MNCs, like na- multinational corporations. You work with people that work at like Kellogg's. You're like, dude, I can't have a conversation with that person, but then they might be able to help you someday. So you kind of got to you got to throw yourself out there like baptism by fire almost because they they might just become quite useful to you and your clients Mm. that's that's kind of how i got when i when i first got there i sort of understood that very quickly and just sort of threw myself in there there'll be people that tell you be like no alicia no like it's just not how we do things but that's that's just a mistake that you have to make you just have to be uncomfortable with it until you can navigate the landscape very interesting. It's probably worth getting the distinction as well for the audience as well, because you've gone into marketing communications. What you're talking about is working in terms of an agency and the term agency or you know, multinational marketing company. The point is you work with external clients, right? So it's a little bit closer to recruitment, whereas I can work with a company like Bosses and Partners, R.O.D., Skidmore's Merrill and, and Heatherwick, and they kind of come to me with a problem and say, uh, Steve, we need a BIM guru to solve all the problems that we're having with Revit right now. So in terms of your role, it's a similar in that way, right? As in, so Carol Communications, which you touched upon briefly, so that one's in the UK. That's a firm focused more towards architecture. So what typically happens, would it be that uh, a client um, and we're not being specific now, but we've just been hypothetically like, so I'm Stephen Drew Architects and I go like, I don't have any time to do marketing. I've got an upcoming project. I hire Carol Communications. And then in Carol Communications, you would be the account manager for Stephen Drew Architects. Is that yeah. roughly right? Yeah, that's roughly right. So you would... Uh, typically we'll, I would have sort of like sort of six or seven, you know, different clients going on and you mm. dealing with everything that is that are going in communications. So anything that sort of, uh, that is like word images that touches the public that is outgoing will, will probably have to run through me or, or one of my colleagues within the firm that advises on the account. Um, and you would sort of work in a sort of tag team in that way. Um, and, you, I think you have to develop quite good skills in sort of time management as to how much time. Because mm. I think a lot of communications firm that you know we work in a way that is almost like lawyers. We do timesheets, um, and uh, you know, and those are like you know, you you have your billable hours, um, and it's very very organised in that way. So your time's money, uh, first of all. And you, mm-hmm. and also when you get to a bit more senior level, where you got to go out there and get clients, you got to understand how much are, how much are these clients demanding? Is Stephen Drew Architect going to suck all my time away and not pay any fees? <laughs> like that, you know, hypothetically, that's kind of something you sort of have to think about as you more senior, and also manage excuse, people. Yeah. Excuse me, you think Stephen Drew Architects would do that? <laughs> how dare you slander me on my podcast? My 
fake art takes practice. <laughs> uh, no, I get I get your point, and it's true. Well, it's a bit like that in architecture, actually, isn't it? You think about it that all the directors. I remember doing the timesheets. In theory, it's billable hours. Of course, there's certain areas when you're kind of winning work, and that's where. And in terms of recruitment as well, a lot of problems happen. And that's what I would say is that, and we can share about that. And let's talk about that briefly, because what happens in the business of recruitment, as you know, Alicia, is that uh, you can get a role on and there's um, basically there can be several different recruitment companies going for a role. And the way it works is that there's a fee in the end after delivering the person. So what you have is this fight uh, or this struggle to find the quickest CV first and whack out the work. And the point is, is that when you have a business model structure like that, I think you don't get the best results. I think that actually, if you engage one recruitment consultant that you chose because you believe in them to do a job, and maybe you pay a little bit of a deposit up front, but you have them on retainer, then that person's accountable. You can always get rid of that person if they're not delivering. But the point is, it's a bit like what you're talking about. There's at least there's a solid relationship. And what I like from what you're talking about is actually, it can sound for if you've not heard it before, it can almost sound a bit harsh, like I've got to make sure people don't suck up my time and all this stuff. But the point is, what you're saying is you work very hard, very seriously for clients who are, um, how is the word I'm looking for, motivated. No, they're serious themselves, right? So they want to get it out. They have a project they want uh, that has value. And you say, right, I'm going to kind of come in, kick ass on this project. I'm going to write up all about your amazing bendy building in the sky. It's the best tower. It's the 200 units. It's going to be da-da-da. And so you do all that and you kind of package it up. But that's the real world, really, isn't it, right? That's kind of – you almost have to be like that to have a successful business. And that's the point, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think understanding how that works and, and your – you know – whether you're an architect or you know, or you run other businesses, it's important to sort of under, understand that cycle and have and have a sort of strategy as to how you approach it. Because you'd be quite surprised as to how little uh, people and a lot of people who run architecture practices lack that sort of awareness um, because mm. they are just so busy doing that one thing that everything else is just sort of falls on the wayside and 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 then you know. It, they don't capture the moment when they when they actually need to be, um, and and for for us working in communications, you know, it's, it's also you know not just for your personal development, but um, not just to build up your client network, but also to, to sort of buffer and 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 be nice in the relationship with with media, you know, with with people that you know people like Oliver Wayne Wayne Wright in the Guardian and Edwin Heathcote who criticizes architecture and you know maintaining that ongoing relationship because you know people uh who work in sort of writing about architecture internationally is a very small circuit so right. you kind of always need to keep that up so it's not like a constant like you know oh I won the client account and that's it you know you also got to you know win relationship with journalists you've got to win relationship with other stakeholders and keeping a lot of things in you know hanging and always you know in good balance so like working on client accounts just because you're billing hours doesn't mean that you you know things that you can't charge for like you know 
oh, I'm going to meet a journalist, I'm maintaining the relationship, I'm spending all these expenses, taking up them for lunch and so forth, doing events and so forth that, you know, those are like sort of the other side that's unaccounted for, you know, on the balance sheet that you actually got to think about. So um, mm-hmm. I think, you know, I would advise that even if you're working as just, you know, a so practitioner as an architect or, um, you know, you work in a, you know, a, as an architect within a larger practice, it's always good to just be aware of your surroundings and make sure that, you know, those are things that are in the balance, not just, you know, you could be like such an amazing architect, but then, you know, if you don't do all those other things, it's really hard to, when, when, when the chips are down, right, you know, like COVID right now, then, you know, where does all your other leads come in, right? So you always mm. got to like keep, you know, that energy, I think, which is really hard, I find. A lot of people feel a bit burnt out by that, but it's good to like keep up with that energy and make sure that you're always, you know, you're always sort of almost like looking for the next thing. Yeah, I agree. Well, there's a lot of things that, because um, what we talk about is, so while I worked in recruitment, associate careers, as you know, it's a recruitment business. And, you know, what I do right now is a little bit different as in it's a, it's a bigger company and I run internally the architectural recruitment team on there. But it's exactly the same lessons you're talking about there in terms of running a business. And what I would say that I've learned is, is there's, there's synergies of what you're talking about in marketing. The synergies talking about what um, in terms of recruitment and terms of architecture. And the one thing that I definitely believe is that when the fees charged to the client and architecture are too low, basically that's where all the problems come in my experience, right? Because if the fees are too low, and what I'm on about is the the fee to the developer, right? So if you're Mr. Architect and you have your business out there. And you're charging, I don't know, I'm making these numbers up. Let's say it's 8% for the project, the whole cost of, for that stage, and you charge 6%. Well, this is where the problems come because suddenly you haven't got money really for mud to do a really good marketing budget. So you end up bodging it yourself because you can't afford it. Then you want to do recruitment and you can't hire good recruitment consultants because you don't have the fee there. And therefore, because the fees are lower you can't put more people to work on the project. So then they work crazy hours and get burnt out. And it's this reciprocal cycle of like doom. And what I mean by that is because people then work long hours, what happens? They leave. And then you need to find someone else, which then you need me, but you don't have the money for me. And by the whole time is then the marketing budget goes down and down and down. So I think it's an important lesson everywhere else that what you're talking about in terms of charging clients and um, what I've learned in terms of architectural recruitment, I'm not just saying I will do the lowest fee because now what I'll say is like, I will work whatever fee you want, but you will get a restricted service. If we can't do it at a certain fee, I can't meet candidates. I just can't. I can't. I can't rack up um, the, as you said, the time versus the money over the output. And I think it's the same in marketing. In theory, you can have a very small marketing budget, but it doesn't mean you can do much in terms of that. And that's that's the point. I think that uh, it, or it, unfortunately. What I've learned in life, it all comes down to making sure at the start that you stay strong with your feet and you kind of, you go in there, you believe in yourself, believing in our feet. But if you, if you get that agreement with the client of a fee, which gives you a bit of wiggle room, then actually what that means is you get the best architecture 
from it because you can, in my opinion, you've got way more wiggle room. If a disaster pops up, it's in budget. You've got more people to work on the role. You can get more marketing. You can pay for um, little blips in the road. Like it's people, you need recruitment. You can pay for recruitment. You can do all this stuff. You can have extra people on the team. So that's what I've learned. But what's your thoughts about that? I agree. Um, I think architects, not all architects, I think it's just uh, architects that I have come across and have worked with. I think they're really terrible at negotiating fees, if you ask me. Um, right. They're being too nice about it. Right. Um, and <clears throat> and I think, you know, I, I don't hear this just from my side of my observation of architects. I hear this even from the client side of developers saying, you know, these people are just not charging enough fees. Now, if you compare to the fees model that law firms charge and then what we charge in architecture, it just is not the same thing. Um, not in terms of price, because obviously you pay, you know, lawyers get paid an insane sum of money to do, you know, uh, to do things. But then at the same time, if you look at the top sort of the top law firms, the magic circle law firms, because their offering is so similar that they are sort of, you know, industry-wide, their fees are capped. They're only going to get paid this amount, right? But in architecture, we don't do the same thing. No practice do the same thing as the other person. So I Mm. think this is your point of difference. I think this actually puts a lot on your arsenal and say, I need to have more fees because if you're asking me, to do this project, it only makes sense if we have enough people to do the right job. We need to hire enough people to do the right job. And that if the client, you know, when you ask for the fees, it's almost like, well, we need a marketing budget with this. Um, In order, you know, you've gone to all that length. You spent seven years building this thing and then you don't tell the world about it because then your money ran short. Um, that's That's just, that's just, you know, that just sounds insane to me. Yeah, it well, is it? I think you're. I think you're right, and it's a lesson. But what you're talking about, this lesson doesn't. It's not even specific about architecture. I think this is a good life lesson. I think this is about what you're worth because I remember in terms of um, shaped careers that we would work on lower fees. And the problem is, once you've established a low fee, it's really hard to get up from there because then, in the client's mind, they're like, "Oh well, I know you went for four percent before." So we're going to do that or what have you. <laughs> and so you've got, you've got to be strong. And I remember coming to McDonald's company and going, thinking, well, I know this client will work at a certain fee. And what I've learned now is sometimes it's the power of saying no, which is so hard at first. Okay. And what I'm on about now, and we can have a giggle. There's a few clients, Alicia, that we've actually worked with at Shape Careers. And I've just said I can't work with them anymore because of a theme. And it's not because you want to. It's because I. it's just having the foresight to go, if I start working at a theme, which is low in architecture, so architectural recruitment, just for anyone listening, because I think there's no point in being, oh, oh, we can't talk about behind the scenes. Let's be realistic. You, you know the score that there's actually, for introducing someone to an architectural practice, the way the current business model goes is that you probably get, what, between 15 to 20% of their annual salary. That is what the fee is. And anyone that's uh, uh, kind of, you know, like, because you know what I'm on about. Everyone's like, oh, we can't talk about behind the scenes. I'm like, no, let's talk about behind the scenes because that is how recruitment works, is that there is an introduction fee. 
be based upon the annual salary. Now, my point is, instead of working on the industry standard, which is uh, between 15 and 20 percent, if it's at 10 percent, then what that does is that I can, quote unquote, still work it. But then really what happens is I don't spend much attention on the role and therefore the client gets a CV that might go into my inbox where I've spoken to someone briefly and that and you can't really expect that. Whereas when you go into a higher fee, what that enables me to do is to actually take a bit of time, go and make a search, go out and find their people who are genuinely have reasons to move, shortlist the right people and present four or five solutions talking about uh, person number one who's in this current situation and then maybe they've got a wife and kids and they're, they're, they're ready to move. They've, they've been burning the midnight oil. They want to find somewhere different. And you've got that case and you've got, and then you've got Arctic B who maybe the commute's been too long for a period of time and they're looking to kind of wind down. And so you get all these different reasons and you go out there, but I imagine it's exactly the same in marketing as in, so what you're talking about marketing, maybe it could be a campaign for a building could, be a proposal imagine like the shard is getting the the branding out there and going to town on it and all this stuff or a few other uh, towers as well prominent towers in london or what have you but if the the budget isn't there for marketing you're like well we can whack up one narrative but we can't go the town on like getting the name out there we can't ring up the journalists we can't ring up bd building design we can't ring up I don't know. Um, the evening standard. We can't. Talk, we can't go about that. We can't write bespoke things. And then suddenly, what we're on about is that the effect of it, like, diminishes. And it's just, but it's the same thing in architecture. Of if the fees are low, what will happen is you will be feel pressured. You will feel up against the wall. And the chances are mistakes can go out on buildings. You know, the whole thing about Grenfell. And don't worry if any architectural practices are listening. You're doing a good job. We're talking about how you can do get things better, how fight for your worth. That's what we're on about. Because, I mean, <clears throat> Grenfell Tower came all about, um, in my opinion, and I'm not researching it as much as many people, but to me, I think Grenfell Tower is an example of um, people under pressure and budgets being cut. And then, unfortunately, people died in the end, which is awful. Because I think that there's, a, I think there's a creeping trend where, with lower fees, money constraints, with liability goes up. And I reckon half the people, oh, my voice is going there, sound really croaky. But I reckon half the people on Grenfell, <laughs> um, they probably had some good intentions. I don't think anyone was maliciously like cutting things out for a laugh. But I reckon half of it comes down to a lack of budget yeah i think i think quite 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 a large uh one of the findings i think you would you would if you really read into it i think it's it is actually that there were a lot of dishonesty i think it's a mixture of budget dishonesty Mm. people who just want to cut corners and when they cut Mm. corners it means that we want to save a bit of money and it came back to the same Mm. that one thing um but I think obviously, but that's a public project as well. So I think, you know, a lot of different mm. things at play, you know, there's a lot, there's just, there was just a lot of dishonesty and, you know, uh, irresp- irresponsibility, you know, shifting the blame. Right. But then it all came down to budget in the end. So, yeah. um, and I think that, you know, that the lesson is that I think, I think tradition, you know, we always complain about fees, 
in architecture that we don't charge the client enough and why you know i think i think you know the conversation needs to kind of change because we work the longest hours in architecture and we get paid like the least you know it's just like you know one of my friends who works at um I think she was at Flanagan Lawrence and she said, oh, my God, like, you know, anything pays better than architecture. It shouldn't really be that way. I don't think it can. It it should go on like that, you know, to be in that way. Um, And, you know, there's only one thing that we can do to change is actually just to ask for it. Because Mm. uh, just from working in PR marketing, um, you know, we when we build, I mean, the way that we build, build our clients as well, you know, I'm just looking at the fees and just sort of compare it to how architects build their fees and how much, you know, that they make, you know, it's, it's just, it's just like they just don't pay architect enough, obviously, because, you know, how, how can that we only work on one aspect of the business that we charge more um, over a course of five year period in, you know, in, in fees, purely fees um, that, you know, the, the architecture, practice when they deliver a project that don't even come up close to that so yeah i think we we need to get better at negotiations i think most of the people that i've you know who who are associates at practices they're quite shy um at sort of going about the numbers and arguing the numbers i think they're being too polite about it i think it's just time that we get a little bit less polite in my view yeah yeah. And this is it. There's a few things there because actually I work for Panic and Lawrence. They're a good company, right? But the point you're going on is that if, um, if for instance, all the really good architectural practices are struggling, then in terms of fees, then it suggests to me that we need to push it higher. Well, what I will sympathize, and, and I do kind of feel though, that the poor old architects sometimes, we know how hard they work. They're doing all the details, they're doing all the crazy things. And what we're saying, and I just want to paraphrase this because if anyone's listening and you work in architecture, are you running it? I don't want you to feel negative about you. You um, you can't do fees. And you, what we're talking about is look at all the amazing stuff you've done. Look at the fact that you're running businesses. Look at the fact that you're you're in architecture. You're on a team. What we're saying is fight for your worth. You know, just remember all the amazing stuff that architects do and stay strong with your feet and flip it around. So when you're speaking to the climate developer, so I always throw it. It's exactly like the way I like to think in terms of when you ask for a salary, like you're like, look, I'm on this salary now. I'm on 35. I believe I'm worth 38. I've just delivered a project. And the point is, if you put me on 38,000 pounds, I'm going to be highly motivated in the next project to take on more responsibility. I know I can do a better job. I think I did a good job before. Give me 38,000. I can take ownership. I'm not going to go anywhere. And therefore, I'm going to work my hardest and deliver an excellent building. Are you happy with that? So if you go into like a salary review with that attitude, or if you say to the client, look, I can do 4%, but if you're 6%, you're going to get an excellent building that people live in for a long period of time. You could win awards on the back of it. They're going to retain their worth. And I'm pretty sure if you give me 6% and compared to 4%, there's much higher chance of return on investment. So yes, Mr. Client, you're spending bit more design services but you're actually buying something you're buying a product you you're uh, there's going to be a far higher likelihood that i'm going to be able to get you the hero brochures get the awards one that can fit in with the brand 
you know, the point is, it's like big because we work with Savills, we work with, uh, in terms of McDonald Company. We're like you, like you say, Alicia, we work with a lot of clients such as um, Bark in Riverside. I work with a really great um, scheme, which is kind of out near Essex, which is going to regenerate an area. And they're, they're really, really good schemes. But the point is, is that a few of the schemes I'm thinking of is that they get architects on board. And I know that the architectural fees are quite good. And then what happens? There's much more chance on uh, a huge return on investment and getting good architecture on board. So I, I think that's what I'm on about. It's more about not a case of don't don't look into your soul and be like, oh, I've been doing it wrong. We're not saying that. We're just on about fight for your worth. And stick strong with your fees because I kind of feel that as well. If you hold on to your higher fees and be open about it, then – that is what you're worth, and you are worth more. And from that, then you tend to get clients which want the best. So, so what I'm on about is a client that is prepared to pay a little bit more in fees. I imagine, typically, are looking for because they want the best people to work on it. And you are the best architect because you're going to do a great job, and you've held out for a higher fee. Oh, you're ringing. How, 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 who's that? Is that your mum? You can put your mum on the yeah, podcast. It is my <laughs> no, but I think I just, I just want to, um, just one final thing. I think, um, usually, mm. usually developers, the ones that are really just not the ideal clients, uh, for your practice, they're probably going to be really daft with their fees in a negotiation and they shut you down really early. I think sometimes, you know, I've, I've luckily actually been at a juncture where I fired a client before. So I think sometimes you've got to wow, reassess. Wow, you fired? Yeah, you've got to, wow, check you you got to reassess and say, you know, is this what I want to be doing? And, and, and if these people are going to be shutting down that negotiation, if they're not going to be willing to, you know, you know, dance at a table, I think it's almost like you've got to think about, are these the clients that we want? Do we need to change our business strategy? Do we need to change tack? You know, if if – this is one way you're getting your projects for the last couple of years. Maybe you need a refresh. Maybe you need a rebrand. You need to think about who you are and what you actually want to do. Um, and for mm. smaller, newer practices that just started out um, and they struggle to get projects quite a lot. And they say to me, look, you know, a lot of our clients, these, you know, design managers in, in, in the client side, they just want to, oh, they just want to hire someone who, you know, is, really established like a like a kpf you know who i just want a kpf type of building and they won't hire us and i think your argument would be like you know do you want something new do you want something fresh and i think collectively you know you got to dig deep you know that whoever you started a practice with or you just by yourself you've had a huge amount of experience coming in to start your own practice then you just got to be really bold and say listen we don't charge as much as kpf but i will I'll do you one better, you know, I will, I will deliver, like you said, you know, some, a building that's really meaningful and I will deliver you the acres of marketing and coverage that you need to actually sell the office space. I don't know, residential units or whatsoever and deliver their end result on the sales team side, on the client side. So I think you've got to just sort of, you know, I, I know that you probably, you guys probably already do this and formulate your argument, but I think, you know, really, I think, I think, you know, a lot of them aren't doing it. So maybe I'm just, you know, like singing about this like a broken record but for those who haven't been doing this i think definitely start doing it and, and know your worth you know mm. 
No, I think that's cool. It's always quite interesting to see where the conversation goes because we don't really script these things. And, you know, and sometimes I think that it's not, I like it because it kind of, what it means is that it's like, it's more topical about what's on our mind right now. And clearly, and I feel the same actually, fees and especially where it gets really tricky um, is especially due with things like coronavirus, it can be really challenging towards your fees. And I can see, I can completely understand how you might feel that you want to, for instance, lower your fees to be competitive. It's almost sometimes what's called in architecture suicide bids, which is just completely low, but you win the work. I can completely understand during this time how you could be tempted to do that. But all right, all right, Alicia, I think this is fantastic. We're going to round up here. So in terms of so because we're going to be all online this is going to be audio so don't worry no one's going to see me early in the morning you in the evening we're all going to be we're going to be on spotify you're going to be you're going to be you're going to be a big star it's going to be you and blink 182 on spotify but where can people find you so you're in the architectural social which is awesome you're also on linkedin where can we find you um, you can, well, you can add me on LinkedIn, um, and mm. I'm happy for you to leave my contact details on your website as well. If they've got any questions or cool. um, they want to, any disillusioned graduates who don't know what they want to do and want to work in PR, we're always looking for people, you know, at Brunswick Group. So, okay. yeah. Amazing. Okay. I'll leave you LinkedIn. I'll put your social link if anyone's on there yeah. and you can say hello. Thank you so much, Alicia. Have a great... Well, I'll have a great morning. You have have a a great great evening. (laughs) Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.